Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host. So glad to be crossing the divide. Where's the book? Where's the book? Right here. All right. With Jessica, the reporter Stone. Jess, have you told any friends and family about TPNR? All the time. All right. Listeners, have you told any any friends about TPNR? It is the number one way. Uh, recommending our program to friends and family. That's the way that word gets out. And we really appreciate any help we can get. And that's important because we have kick-ass guests like our guest today. Woohoo! Yeah. Jake Sherman is the co-founder of Punchbowl News, a daily newsletter service focusing on Congress. Listeners, remember Anna Palmer, who came on the program back in February. She's Jake's longtime writing partner and co-founder of Punchbowl, along with the somewhat elusive and mysterious yet legendary <laughs> Brez, uh, John Bresnahan. Uh, but since I brought it up, I do have to say right at the top, if you're a subscriber to Punchbowl like me, you don't just get the daily podcast. You don't just get the morning newsletter. You get the midday edition, the PM edition, along with brown bag lunches and a Slack channel. It's all kinds of cool stuff if you're a total geek for all things politics like me. But my hearty endorsement for Punchbowl aside, Jake has been covering national politics in particular, all the goings on in Congress for over a decade having spent over 11 years at Politico before starting Punchbowl with Anna and Brez. He also co-authored a great book. If you're, again, a political junkie like me, The Hill to Die on, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America, which (laughs) I'm thinking like if the characters from House of Cards read it, they'd be clutching their pearls about all the Machiavellian machinations that went on. You know, such in-depth reporting, great writing. And we are so glad to have Jake Sherman with us. Jake, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. You know, I wanted to start with something that you mentioned in your acknowledgments for the book. I'd love to know about Irene and Ryder Sherman and how they influenced you. Well, that's a great question to start off. So there's more than Irene and Ryder. There's Irene Ryder and, and Josie now. Um, I have two children. So my I, I'd like to say that my wife uh, my wife has has forced me to be a better person. <laughs> uh, that's always <laughs> the, a good thing a wife can do. Although all, not all of her goodness has rubbed off on me, unfortunately for me, because she's a really great person. She cares deeply about her family, which is something that I has forced has I wouldn't say forced me, but has inspired me to to be uh, more connected with my family and to and my wife is very good at showing up. I would say mm. she doesn't miss things for friends for family, and um, that is something that is incredibly important to me. And and she's a great mother. She's a lawyer, so she's also has a big job, and um, 
I would say that uh, she is definitely a better mother than I am a father, but um, I, I, she inspires me to be a better father. But I would say that's probably true with most mothers. Maybe not. Maybe just I'm a uniquely horrible father. Oh, I'm kidding. Man. No, I, 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 uh, I, it's not, I'm kidding. I'm just giving myself a hard time. No. And my, I, my, my children are, are an incredibly important part of my life. Ryder is four. Josie is two. Ryder is obsessed with Spider-Man at the moment. And, you know, I, I appreciate Spider-Man, but listen, I, I will say this. I, I am, um, throughout all the crazy stuff in my life, like the things that I, I try to, I, I almost never, not almost never, but I try to never miss is I'm around in the morning and I'm, and I'm at home, at home every night for, for 90% of the nights for, for bedtime. And the, on the weekends, I am all my children's and I'm around, uh, we, we're Jewish and I'm around Friday night for dinner. And that's something that's incredibly important to me, incredibly important part of my life. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it, work-life balance is tough, man. It's tough for everybody, but uh, it's something that I, that I'm very mindful of and try to try to uh, be better at. Yeah. You said uh, in the acknowledgments, it almost made me cry. All I do is for you. Uh, you talk yep. about, uh, you, you know, Irene making the book possible and, uh, it was really touching, but, uh, thank you. Appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. It was felling really is what he wants to say. <laughs> felling. Um, Made me verklempt. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. We'll bring out all our Yiddishisms. How is it that you possibly don't have, don't are able to do the kids on the weekends when Congress is bound and determined to work on the weekends these days? Yeah, they actually haven't worked a ton on the weekends. And so when I was a Politico and I was writing playbook, we were, we did have weekend editions. We don't have that with Punchbowl News, which is something that my wife is very happy about, I would say. <laughs> um, so I listen, I have to work sometimes in the weekends, but not that much. And usually it could be confined, confined to a nap time. And we're about to get into a uh, college basketball season. So me and my son go to a lot of uh, GW where I went to college basketball games. We have season tickets. So uh, we missed all last season. And my son is both obsessed and terrified of George, the mascot, which is George Washington, the mascot <laughs> of the Colonials. So we will see if he's now that he's four, I guess the last time he probably went to a game, he was two. Uh, and so I'll have to see if he is continues to be afraid of George, the mascot. I hope he's not, but um, uh, I, I guess it's a possibility that he will be. And my daughter has never been to a basketball, a GW basketball game. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Well, one of my best friend's sons, who's also named Jake, just graduated from G-Dub. Oh, good. Uh, so shout out to my 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 buddy Ira and Mila and their son, Jake Rosenheim. But I I, I was curious, you studied journalism at G-Dub and then got a master's in journalism from yeah. Columbia. At what point did you know you wanted to become a reporter? Yeah, that's a really good question. I always kind of wanted to be a reporter. I was like, it was always something I was very fascinated with. I love telling stories. I love to be the first person to know things. I think that's like the, you know, I, I tried to, I remember when I was in like elementary and middle school, I tried to start a, a, a newspaper, didn't fly. I joined my, it was funny when I joined my high school paper in Stanford, Connecticut, where I grew up, school, high school let out at 1.50 PM. And my mother said, you need to find something to do. And like, that was like the first place I went. And then when I went to GW, that first thing I did was go to the college paper. And, and actually, frankly, like one of the big things about going to GW and being in DC was being in DC and being around the news and things like that. So it's, I, I actually never, and I, I kind of was, I was a pretty bad student um, <laughs> throughout GW. And I got into Columbia, I think, because I had unique work experience. I'd been done a lot of internships. I was the editor of my college paper. 
So I think they kind of looked past the bad grades and and were willing to take me in spite of that. So yeah, that's it's always been part of my DNA and part of my part of my being. What about your mom? I read somewhere that she's a preschool teacher at uh, I don't know if this was your temple that you grew up in and in, in uh, yeah. It was not the temple I grew up in, but it was uh, the nursery school I went to. She's no longer. My parents are. My dad has been retired and unretired three or four times because he can't he can't (laughs) figure out. He can't really sit still, which is maybe how I get it. And uh, my mother was a nursery school teacher, mostly after we grew up. I have a brother and a sister. And so my mom had her hands full. My both my parents had their hands full. And my mom worked when when we were growing up part of the time and uh, part of the time she did not. And then after we left the house, it was mostly, definitely after I left the house, probably after my brother and sister left the house, she taught nursery school, which comes in handy now that we have, we have children because she, she has a lot of activities for my children to complete (laughs) uh, as they go about as we, as they, and they, they spend a lot of time in DC, which is really nice for me because we could always use the help as much as humanly possible. So my mom was a kindergarten teacher for 35 years. So uh, there was definitely a lot of organized, structured activities for the kids when they were young. Now that they're all like, you know, my youngest is 16, my oldest is 20. So, you know, at the Seders, uh, when Phyllis, my mother, brings out all the little tchotchkes uh, for that that five-year-olds really love, but 20-year-olds not so much, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. It's uh, (laughs) You you lose interest in that at some point. We have finger puppets for the boils, you know, like (laughs) for each one of the... And I'm like, mom, this is only going to work so long, you know? Yeah. But it, it makes a visual. It's a visual yeah. seder for sure. Well, professionally, <laughs> you've said that one of your mentors is Carrie Budoff Brown. And I'd love yeah. to hear you share a bit about what you learned from Carrie in your early days at Politico. That's really an interesting question. I was just text messaging with her a couple minutes ago. She's now at NBC and she's the vice president of, of Meet the Meet the Press franchise. She's She's a, an innovative thinker, an innovative newsroom leader. So Carrie and I, I first got to know Carrie in 2009 when I joined Politico, and Politico was just uh, kind of a tiny newsroom in the back corner of the local TV affiliate, which was also owned by Robert Albritton, my, my, now my friend and, and the owner of Politico, recently sold Politico for a billion dollars. So as I tell him, drinks are on him every time <laughs> from now, a year on out. Um, no, but... Um, Carrie is brilliant. She's she taught me how to report and how to think about stories. Same with John Bresnahan, who's now one of my partners at Punchbowl News. I think part of this business, part of journalism and or the journalism that we do is understanding what motivates people, thinking about policies and how and how people get around to policy and pe- how people get how people think about policies through the lens of politics. And she's the rare reporter, and I don't have this the skill, but she does. She's the rare reporter who understands policy and politics, like the intricate policy details and what drives and motivates people. Usually you're one or the other. I'm much more political in the sense that I, I've spent my life and my, and my, um, my years covering, uh, leadership, covering the speaker and and various levels of, of congressional leadership. Carrie is able to do that plus do the policy angle. I'd say I'm 75-25. She was really 50-50 and but really 100% at both. And she was just such she's such a force of nature, which is very strange in 
in being a reporter and, and she ended up being a newsroom leader, but she was a reporter and she was just such a, a magnetic force of nature and someone that I really looked up to for, for many years and continue to look up to. She went back to, she went to Brussels uh, for Politico to, to be one of the top people in Politico's newsroom in Brussels. And um, when, when the leadership changed over at Politico a number of years ago, when I was still there about 20 16 she came back from brussels and i basically said the only way i would stay is if she came back and, mm. and she came back and i stayed and it was she's just been supportive of me and I, I hope i've been supportive of her at every point in her career and and we're still very close friends and although we're both neither of us are at politico anymore um we, we remain in touch and remain very close friends on a related note something that's so clear is that the access you have and the contacts that that you've made are so in depth, so wide and so deep. And I'm curious, at what point did you, is it a matter of developing relationships? How, how do you develop those contacts? How do you develop those, those, those relationships that lead to the kind of access that you have? A few things. Um, I, I got a couple pieces of theoretical thoughts, I guess is the best way to think of it, or moral or um, ethical thoughts, and then a couple just practical things. One of my mentors uh, is Jim Vandehei, who was the founder of Politico and is the founder of Axios. So he's now started two companies that um, are worth, you know, I mean, he's probably one of the most, not probably, he's the, one of the most prolific um, media executives of our, of our time. He taught me, he was, he had a similar career path as I did in the sense that he worked at, he covered the Hill and covered leadership and did it at the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, and then started Politico. But I would say about Jim, he, he always taught me that you should be outside of every meeting. You should have one person in the meeting that tells you what's going on. And, and Mike Allen, my friend, who also is one of the founders of Axios, always told me that you should talk to, you should, people should never be surprised. If you're going to write something bad about them, they need to know. I also find that like these aren't like princes and princesses, members of Congress. Like they're just normal people who got elected to big jobs. John Boehner used to say, and it was a little corny when he said it, but I'm just a regular guy with a big job. Like these are just regular people. If you treat them like normal people and like not like, oh my God, it's this, they, it's not, it, it, it's, it, like you're the same level as them. You don't have to be especially re like, especially uh, respect. You have to be respectful, just like I'm respectful of any human being um, that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. But being honest, being real and being there when you don't need something is the most important thing. I mean, I stand outside of meetings and if I, and, and people get used to seeing you and realize that you're putting the time. And I think a lot of, a mistake a lot of people make on Capitol Hill is they, um, I think that they, they swing in and drop in and, they don't spend the time that they need to spend to take the job seriously. They see it as a stopover on a larger journey, which it might be, but you have to, but con Congress is important. And if you don't spend the time getting to know these people, getting to know the issues and get, getting to, un to understand the issues, um, you're not going to be successful. That's interesting. I thought you were going to talk about taking people out to lunch and drinks and beers and whatever's. Oh, no. It's the waiting in the hallways. Yeah. I'm so glad that you did that before you had kids. Cause can you imagine like, Hey kids, I can't come check your homework. Cause I'm still outside waiting for X, Y, Z. No, I mean, listen, part of it is that now too. I mean, I, I definitely do stand outside of a lot of hallways and I'm not home every night for, for, for dinner and bedtime. I'm home a lot. 
yeah, I mean, going out to drinks is, I don't really do that anymore, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't I don't drink as much as I did when I was in my, my early and mid-20s, which is probably a good Wait thing. Wait till you have teenagers, you, you'll drink more. <laughs> uh, I, I, I imagine so. I, I don't, I just, I, uh, I, I don't sleep a lot of hours, so I try to sleep sober is my is one of the <laughs> keys to my success. So, um, no, and I, I just find that like, um, I just find that you could do enough business during daylight hours, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but it's 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 waiting outside of halls. That's mm. it. It's 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 um, it's that kind of stuff that does it for me. Yeah, those are cold, cold floors, man. My, they are my cold floors. end is feeling that pain right now. <laughs> I'm revisiting that. I, uh, I trained with Chad program at one point and uh, yep. he put me outside of a lot of hallway meetings. So uh, I'm actually really more curious, not just on the reporting side, but because I've never started a reporting entity and you have now done it and you have been mentored by people who've done it. You know, we're not that great at business, some of us uh, no. journalists. We, we study words for a reason. And I'm curious what have been the markers um, or the, the things you've learned that you believe have made Punchbowl a business success? Are they things that you're executing or things that you're delegating? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, is having uh, a great partner. And Anna is the uh, best partner that anyone could have. And she's somebody who you don't, and, and we've talked about this a lot throughout the years. I mean, she and I have been writing partners and we wrote a book together. We did playbook together as we talked about a little bit at the beginning. Uh, but she's been a partner of mine in, in some way, shape, or form for almost a decade. And um, you don't really get partnerships. She's the partner of my life, I guess you could say. I mean, she's she's somebody who is like my best friend and my business partner and John Bresnahan too. So us three and Rachel Schindler, who I worked with at Politico in a different capacity. She was in charge of, of growth. And, and when we kind of started this company, uh, we started it during COVID and, um, or we started thinking about it during COVID and talking about it during COVID while I was still at, at Politico. And we decided that we were going to do it. And and the key was Jim Vandehei again, gave me great advice. Um, he said, do what you like, do what you love with people you love and you'll be happy. And I, I felt like I could do, like, that was a big, a big thing for me. So Anna is the business mind behind this. She is the CEO. And she, I would say that I would. I'm guess I'm curious at this point. You guys talked to her in February, but I'm curious what you would say now. I'd say she's ninety percent business, ten percent editorial. Even even maybe even ninety five percent business, ten five percent editorial. I'm ninety nine percent editorial, and she just tells me what's going on in the business so I can know. But basically, our our theory was if we could we could do what we love to do, which is cover power people in politics in Washington, chart that matrix, I guess is the best way to say it, and do it in, in an innovative way and build community around. It. And and we've been able to do that. But she's the she's the business mind and and we delegate a lot. So like we don't have a an accountant. We delegate we we have pay for a service for that. We don't we don't have a um we don't have a designer. We pay to outsource that or we do it ourselves, but we mostly pay to outsource it when we do high level stuff. Um, and it's the basics of just reporting and being competent in your reporting and not getting sucked into the shiny objects of today's media and like being very focused. Like I have, I used to have a note on my desk when I was um, writing playbook and now I, I should put it back on my computer, know who you're writing for. And, and we know who we're writing for every day and we write for them and we write about the things they care about and the things we think they should care about. And 
And just being extraordinarily tied in with that niche is very important, I think, to the business. How do you describe your audience? People who are, um, that's a good question. So people who are either in the, involved in legislative politics directly. So people who work on Capitol Hill, people who need to understand legislative politics, people at the White House and and obviously people at the White House because they're part of the legislating equation too. And we have a lot of readers on Wall Street and in venture capital and things like that who are trying to better understand Washington. But that's our basic audience, I would say. And we're not like, we're not afraid of that. You know, we're not afraid of admitting that that is, that is our, that is our target audience. If you're, if you, we have, and I wish Anna were here or Rachel were here so she, they could stay the stats, but we're in, I believe like a hundred percent of house offices and something like or 95% of House offices and 100% of Senate offices, which is incredible. And and we write about the things that they they care about and they need to understand. And if you need to understand what the leadership is doing and separate the signal from the noise, that's what we try to do in the legislative sense. Yeah, and I do have to say that the, the reporting is accessible enough for guys like me. Uh, I've never been on in DC. I've never been in politics. Well, hold, that's the third leg of the stool, which is people who are interested in that. So yeah. the way we the way we think about it, Corey, is that we want people like you who are not in who are not involved in it. But what we all the way we used to say it is it's for this audience. But if you're Anna's Anna's from North Dakota, if you're Anna's mom from <laughs> North Dakota and you want to come along for the ride, then that's even then that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me feel like an insider. Uh, I also Yeah, just- exactly. I want to ask you about the hill to die on, but I do need to make comment about the the institution of journalism has been under such an attack. But I think the the level of reporting and the integrity with which you and and the whole team uh, approach it really gives one optimism uh, and, and is encouraging and even inspiring that there are really good reporters there, there's really good journalists that are doing really, really good work. So I, I don't say it just because you're here, but it's something that really. Oh no, he says it when you're not here. Just, just a full disclosure. Appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you have to. Sometimes you just have to know where to look and, and develop a, a level of discernment to recognize it when you see it. But I'm telling you, if you just, you know, if you if you read a couple of the the morning editions, uh, listen to to the podcast every morning, then you, you'll know what I'm talking about. And also, I, I think the thing that we try that we have our advantage is intimacy with our audience. People trust us, and that's really important. And um, I think a lot of news outlets can't replicate that. And um, because, and for a variety of reasons, part of it is because we were in people's mailboxes for so long at Politico. Hmm. Um, but intimacy is very important. Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned The Hill to Die on that you co-wrote with Anna. It covers really, I think when we fast forward 50 years or 100 years, it really is a pretty extraordinary period in American history from 2016 to 2018. The book gives us an intimate look at what was happening among key figures in Congress from around the time that Trump was first elected with Paul Ryan as speaker, uh, the clumsy process to get to the 2017 tax bill across the finish line. Um, it looks at the machinations of Tea Party guys like Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, who are. Com- and I was just like, who right, is there a competition for who's going to be a bigger pain in the ass to the Speaker Ryan? You know, like let alone you know how how fraught the relationship was was with the president, how they got to and ultimately through the shutdown of 2018. 
had a team like Pelosi and Schumer, even though they were in the minority, were just eating their lunch through that uh, through that period, ultimately leading up to the Democrats winning back the majority in the House, how Nancy Pelosi, oh, this was another interesting thing toward the end of the book, how she was able to win back the speakership, even with challenges from within the Democratic caucus, as, as uh, we, we may remember. But so many twists and turns, I, as you could tell, I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Was there, was there one, in the process of doing the research to develop the book, was there one moment or two or three after everything you've seen and all that happened where you were just amazed and thought, I can't believe this person is doing this, or I can't believe so-and-so is telling me this. I would say the thing I was more amazed about was the fact that I was able to do it <laughs> and, not, <laughs> and not like, and not like uh, go crazy, but I actually felt like it was a, um, you know, some people describe when they have a really good game in basketball that they're like, it's an out of, like an out of body experience. That's what I felt like for me, but no, I mean, I was meeting. So I guess I don't really do, do well with um, going halfway on anything. Like, so I was meeting with, with sources there were a number of characters. There was an, I should be careful about how I say this, but there were a number of characters in the book who I just met with on a almost daily, weekly, you know, biweekly basis, uh, under a variety of different agreements and and things of that nature. Um, and sometimes, and I, it, I always found it was important to get their thinking in the moment. What are you thinking right now? How are you going to solve this? How are you going to get out of this? What are you aiming for? Just so you could know what you know you could have them on the record as he was thinking this this was his frame of mind this is what was bothering him you know things like that but there was no moment uh, it was i actually felt a huge sense of emptiness when the book was over because i just loved it so i loved doing it so much and i nearly we nearly wrote another book about the next congress which would have been an impeachment book which i'm very happy i didn't do to be honest with you um because there were so many out there and it was just not it wouldn't have been worth my my time i like to cover things that are not being covered by 20 million people at the same time. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a, a long answer, a long way of saying there was no single moment, but I, I, I just appreciated so much the experience. Yeah. Yeah. So then not too long after that, you launched Punchbowl and uh, about uh, the book came out in April, 2019 and Punchbowl started in January, 2021 quite a moment to start a, a new yeah <laughs> on congress a, a new yep. business so what so just going back a little bit what what prompted you to start punchbowl I, I i we were looking so we had been at politico i had been as you said at the beginning i had been in politico for 11 years and that's a very long time i thought it was one of, it was my first real job out of grad school um and i never thought i was going to be there for that long because no one stays in shops for 11 years anymore, I would say. And I, uh, I kind of thought about Anna and I always, I have a really dear friend of mine, Ian Wishingrad, who is the uh, serial kind of restless entrepreneur who is now the, the founder of a serial company called three wishes Serial, which I'll give him a shout out. It's a, I'm, I'm an investor in it, which, so that's my conflict here, but I, and I don't really eat cereal, but if I did, it would be three wishes. <laughs> um, and he always told me that I should go do it. And I was always afraid. And then the middle of COVID, I just said to Anna, like we, you know, there was, there was a lot of change over Politico and, and we were getting restless and we were, wanted to do something new. And we had a very firm idea about what that would be. And Anna said to me, and we kind of said, why don't we do this? And, um, 
And why don't we want to be like, I guess the criticism, although we didn't hear it at the time, but the criticism after we left Politico, a bunch of people at Politico said we were too focused on Congress. And I thought to myself, just wait until they see what we do next, because we're going to be even more focused on Congress. So the idea was kind of to to productize us and people who are like us. And we raised venture money from a guy named Arye Borkov, who's, um, uh, we are probably, if you if you think of his deals as like sand on a beach, we are like not even a speck of sand. He's now <laughs> done the the Amazon MGM deal, the time the Warner Media uh, Discovery deal. He's been one of the most prolific media bankers around. And he, we raised a million dollars and we kind of were off to the races. January 3rd was our first edition when Pelosi became speaker. January 6th obviously happened three days later. And um, so we were off to the races from then. So you were speaking of January 6th. You were in the Capitol that day. I was. What was that like? Uh, scary, <laughs> I would say, is the first way to say it. I was, uh, you know, listen, I, I it all kind of happened very quickly and very slowly at the same time. I was in this room, actually. Uh, and lucky for so this room, just to give you a sense, Jessica, you probably know this, but this is on the third floor of the Capitol. H three hundred four. It is the pa- the periodical press gallery from which the periodicals, roll call, CQ, all those folks used to uh, exist out of. We um, we are basically uh, from that side of the room. We are, you know, probably a hundred yards from the house floor, maybe a little bit more, but probably not actually about a hundred yards from the house floor, and um, we were in here. And we were told to shelter in place. We didn't. We kind of roamed around. But it was funny. We were the like some of the last people evacuated from the building because it was not safe to get to us, even for the SWAT team, until very late, until the evening, late afternoon, evening. My recollection was four or five o'clock. I could probably confirm that somewhere in my, in my text messages or emails or or whatever. But it was scary. And, and we kind of always thought of this place as being – I mean, I – I leave my computer and go walk around the building. This is a quite yeah. safe place. I always thought um, I spend more time in this building than anywhere else in my life. So it was it was kind of a it shook our sensibilities that we were that we were safe. I would mm. say um, so that was kind of the big thing for us. And and you know we always thought once we're in the Capitol we're safe and and clearly we were not. So that was that was interesting to us. Yeah. Now this might be a question if you don't. If it's too sensitive, just let me know. But that very day, certain talking points were emerging that have now morphed, it seems like, into an entire strategy. And we know the the top hits. It, it was really BLM, Antifa, or or the Tucker Carlson thing now, a false flag operation is uh, he's he's hinting not so subtly. Um, or it's it's largely a peaceful protest or or um, equivalencies, distractions. Well, where was your outrage when they were whatever burning down Portland? So when you talk to your contacts in the GOP, are these talking points merely for the cameras or behind the scenes when you get folks speaking off the record, do they know this is bullshit or? or... Yeah, I actually don't hear that much among elected officials. I mean, obviously there are some outliers, but I don't hear that much among elected officials. Most people understand because they were in rooms surrounded by cops with machine guns that this was a real dangerous situation and we're very lucky more people didn't die. And I would say... We were, you know, a hair away from more people not dying. Mm. Um, you know, someone gets a gun in here. Who know? I mean, we don't know if anyone had a gun. We have no idea. I'm not saying they did. Um, we're damn lucky that none of that stuff happened. 
um, but for the kind of heroic behavior of a few people, that didn't happen. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit in the remaining minutes of uh, some of your analysis of what's going on today. Sure. In current events. Um, I want to ask you about your current sense of the Democratic Party on the Hill. We've been seeing a really, I think it's fascinating, uh, dynamic inside the Democratic Party playing out over the passage of these infrastructure bills and the more expensive social spending bill. Curious if uh, what your thoughts are on the rise of power of the progressives and what do you glean from today's direction of the Democratic Party and what this might mean for governing overall? Yeah, so it's definitely definitely leftward shifting. I mean, the big question is going to become how do um, what happens when Pelosi leaves? That's the big question that we're all going to be. That's my next question. <laughs> yeah. Talking about <laughs> thinking about all those things when Pelosi leaves. So uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, my, um, what do I think? I mean, listen, they're obviously caught between a huge battle um, between the center and the and the left, and the left is ascendant. The center is, but they're both the majority makers. I mean, and 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 I, I would say that this is kind of, I would say that there's a, definitely a sense among Democrats that there is, a, that they are speeding past stop signs, right? That they are, there are warning signs about the, um, about the the state of the Democratic Party and the election in 2022, and um, you know, I think that's that's kind of the over the overarching thing. And I, I there's a definitely a push and pull between this is historic and this is historically stupid. Um, <laughs> and um, and I don't think anyone says it's historically stupid, but there's definitely trepidation about passing trillions of dollars of spending, yeah. uh, just from a political point of view. And 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 if people say that's not true, they're lying. What about uh, any heir appearance for Pelosi? I mean, she's demonstrated this really super unique ability to keep corralling the cats and it's pretty impressive. I mean, even the way she was on John King's show last weekend and just able to kind of kind of draw it out, not quite answer a lot of his questions, but give him just enough to keep the suspense. I mean, we've, it's been a very suspenseful process watching the infrastructure bill uh, attempted to be passed. Yeah, so I mean, the heir appearance are, are um basically Hakeem Jeffries is probably the the odds on favorite to be speaker Hakeem Jeffries of New York uh there's no question that Pelosi will go down as the one of the most effective le congressional leaders of our lifetime uh possibly in American history whether you like her or hate you her, hate her you have to admit that she's incredibly she has been incredibly effective uh and we don't know how this episode is going to end up so um this episode of Congress not this episode that we're talking on but <laughs> I guess we don't know how that's going to end up either. But no, so um, you know that is the that's the reality. And I would say that you know I would say that they'll go through a bit of an identity crisis. You know, Pelosi's been a leader for twenty years, and um, when you get rid of somebody who's been a leader for twenty years, and we assume she's going to retire, and she's basically said she's going to retire, then that's difficult. So. Quick technical question um, yeah. on reconciliation, which we don't have to get in what it, it, into what that is because it's far too complicated. But that's the pr process, the tool that um, that the Democrats are trying to use to pass the social uh, spending bill. Is there because it's budget related and the budget happens by Congress and by timeline? Is there a deadline that they have to use reconciliation by? Or, or that's a good question. There is. They can't use it anytime. I think they have to use it by next by next September. But they get another reconciliation bill next year. Um, mm. You get one one every budget year. 
That's a much longer leash than I thought they had, actually. That's a- yeah, but they can't. They can't. I, I'm not 100 percent certain about that because everybody sees the deadline as being the end of this year. Before you get into election year, you have to finish this up. So that right. December 3rd is is when a lot it's it's becoming an even bigger and bigger cliff, isn't it? Yes, yeah. um, it is. Uh, I imagine that they're going to try to get a, get get much of the um, agenda stuff done before that is my is my guess. I would say in the next two weeks. So a lot of attention has been on bipartisan infrastructure, the Build Back Better plan, whether it's one point five trillion or three trillion. It's going to be big one or the other. Uh, talk about the debt limit, obviously, and some other things. Has there been any talk over the last few weeks about voting rights, police reform, some of the other things that were? No, nothing serious. And, you know, listen, you have to blow up the filibuster if you want to do that. And they're not really willing to do that. Not really. They're not at all willing to do that. Um, yeah. So I, I it's you know, it's it's a it's a tough. Um, those are tough issues. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean that. In the, I don't mean that in a uh, in a glib way. They're just really tough issues. And. And no, so there's not been any real any real talk about it. Yeah. Another bit of current events, Jess. Yeah. Let uh, retirement of Adam Kinzinger. We were both floored when we saw that. <sighs> I think I saw that first on your Twitter feed this afternoon. And um, just what is the significance of him leaving Congress, especially his role in the January 6th committee, voting for Trump's impeachment, being a rare Republican House member standing against the pro-Trump tide? Yeah, he's that's exactly what he is. I mean, he also was left without a district um, his, he, in the Illinois redistricting. He was cut out. And it, that's it, he wouldn't have really had a seat to run in. Um, I've OK, known, so that's a little easier decision than I thought. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> yeah I've known I've known Kinzinger for a very long time. I've, he's an honorable guy who is representative of a Republican Party that no longer exists. Yeah. It's no more complicated than that. And he was either going to run again and lose or he was going to retire. And he says his political career is not over. We'll see. He might maybe he runs for president. I don't I have no idea. So uh, that is that that's that. And, you know, I was looking this morning, a lot of people in that transformation, that transformative, you know, 2010 election, 2020, 2010 House class, a class that was. Um, oh, the Tea Party class. Yeah, the Tea Party class. A lot of those people are gone. I mean, a lot of them have moved on. Mike Pompeo, Tim Scott, just a, a ton of people I'm trying to think who else is in that class. Um so it's just it's it's a big um, it's been a you know the party has moved on without him I'd say um, to a place that he thinks is that he's uncomfortable with yeah makes you wonder if there is a place for and it would take forever and it would take nothing short of a miracle but is there another major party where uh, politicians like Kinzinger uh, can find common ground with politicians like Cinema and Mansion you know not really. Very yeah. difficult, very high hurdles, institutional hurdles. And uh, the way, I mean, maybe in a theoretical sense, but not in a practical sense, I'd say. I, I want to just explore that really quickly. Of course, it's a big question. But does that mean you see our politics and, and specifically our Congress getting more divided and less bipartisan than it already is? Yeah, I don't think the fever has broken. I think redistricting is a huge part of that. And now I really want to drink. Yeah, yeah re- redistricting <laughs> is a huge part of that. and. Um, you know, I don't see it getting better is the mm. short answer. So one of my favorite features that just came out in the, the midday edition on Fridays, who's up, who's down. Can you give us a little snippet? Yeah. Who's up, who's down. I'd have to look back at our edition today. Cause I don't remember off the top of my head. Those are, are helmed by uh, Christian Hall and Max Cohen, two of our, our, uh, 
young reporters and they are not not only they are almost right out of college both of them great people but Pramila Jayapal we could talk about about Jayapal who has been the leading liberal who has been the only person I've seen to hold the left together in the House of Representatives we'll do one of each and down um, we'll say Biden Pelosi and Schumer who were unable to get the agenda through this week for the umpteenth week in a row and that is that is that's tough for them I I don't think it's fatal but it's tough yeah I mean, the second time that that a president goes to the Hill and didn't get anything out of it. So that, that was pretty remarkable. Yeah, not, not ideal. Yep. All right. So uh, we'll hold you to this. This is on the record. 2022. What are your projections and predictions? <laughs> so I believe I think Republicans will take the House. I think that absent some sort of history defying event, which it would have to be because the party out of power, just like in 2018, usually takes the, the first midterm when the president is in office. I would say that uh, I don't have a good sense of the Senate yet. I think there's just a lot of things we don't know, but um, that's about it. I have no, don't ask me if Trump's going to run because I don't have any idea. I have no unique insight. I'm not a Trump whisperer or a Trump mind reader, but um, I do think Republican. Have, by the way. Yeah, I don't, not, <laughs> not interested in that. Not interested in that. Plenty of people are in that territory, but you know, I would, I would, I do think Republicans will take back the house. Mm, interesting. I do have a retort to that, but not, not for now. I just, I, well, I will say that that oft-cited, you know, midterm, for, you know, first midterm of, of a new president is a technical data point. It's not set in stone. No, it's not. And, and it really depends on the fundamentals. I also saw an interesting study from Pew, uh, not Pew, it was, um, oh gosh, Cook Political Report, uh, that redistricting Original uh, projections were that redistricting could be anywhere from plus three to as many as plus 15 uh, for for Republicans. But the Cook political report said they already maxed out their redistricting. So we're not going to we're going to see the lower end of that number. Yeah, they think it's going to be between five and 10 or something like that. But still, I mean, I agree. The only time that history has that we've seen that that trend not not happen was 20 uh, 2002 after 2011 yeah. and 1998 during um, uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment. Yeah. So yeah. the question is, is COVID a big enough event? Obviously it's a massive event, but is who knows? We don't, yeah. we just don't know, but I, I you know, it, it is a technical, yeah, that's right. It's not set in stone at all. Yeah. As Mitch McConnell says, as Mitch McConnell says, don't fall in love with the map. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's still a, it's an eternity between now and November of 2022. So we'll see what happens. So last question. Do you have any questions for us? What is your thought of the media climate right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thought that comes to mind is I am incredibly encouraged by the emergence of certain independent media outlets like Punchbowl. But I find myself listening to a heck of a lot more Punchbowl, Dispatch, The Bulwark uh, than watching broadcast news. I still take in as much as I can. Um, I still take in, you know, uh, what do you call it? Terrestrial radio. Yep. But I think that to think of, to think of independent media as all bad or all good. No, it's just the tool that there's accessibility now to independent voices. That's right. I'd like to think that there'd be some education some, some training for young people, young formative people that we learn how to discern what's good information, what's good reporting and what is garbage uh, so that we just get better at this thing. But 
that's that's my first impression. I'm encouraged by voices like yours and and other independent media outlets that are emerging. What do you think, that's, Jess? That's kind of, it's good to hear. Yeah. Well, I'm a broadcaster, and it's it, it's a, it's a desert of quality. Um, it's really hard to find quality. Um, it's not to say there aren't quality reporters uh, in broadcast news, but I, I increasingly can watch business channels almost exclusively and read a lot more. And I have two young children like you do, so I need to be read too sometimes. And I'm not as great of an auditory as a literary. So I find that I'm, I, I feel like I'm falling behind where I used to feel like, oh, I could just leave the leave cable on all day. I don't feel like that anymore. I feel like no, there's right. way, way more yelling than there is inform, information unless I'm watching the BBC or maybe Bloomberg, you know, or CNBC, maybe. Um, it's and not, to, not to say that nobody's good. I just, there's a lot of talk and a lot more analysis than I want. I just want more facts and I'll do my own analysis. Thank you very much. Yep. <laughs> okay. So this is actually our, our very last question. It's more of a piece of business. How can we find more information on you and Punchbowl News online? Uh, punchbowl.news is our uh, official website. You can, I, I think you could, I know you could also go to punchbowlnews.com. It'll take you to the same place, but we're punchbowl.news and you could find everything there. And I hope everyone signs up. Yeah, it's terrific. It really is. Thank you. And uh, there's, there's, if, if, if we get enough subscribers, there, there might be some swag in it for me. That's, uh, that's, that's the it. rumor. Ooh, look at that. <laughs> that's it. That's yes, it. Just making sure. Did I forget anything? Uh, not that I can. Think I think about. we covered a, a pretty good, good deal here. Good run. Thank you, Jake. And uh, we should have said that the times when you're on cable news is definitely when we can watch, right? Yeah, well, uh, I, I sometimes yelled too, but I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jake, this is an absolute pleasure. I am so grateful for your time and, and to, to get to hang out with you. Thank you, of course. Uh, it, and for our listeners, as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, tell a friend about us. Now go talk politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.